0: Welcome to this episode of To Differ is Divine, a podcast about spiritual permeability from the Episcopal Diocese of North Carolina, hosted by Bishop Sam Rodman, Bishop of the Diocese, and Rabbi Raquel Juravix, the diocese rabbi in residence and former leader of Yavna, the Jewish Renewal Community in Raleigh. I'm Summerly Walter, producer for this podcast, and I'll be introducing each episode. To Differ is Divine is an invitation to devotional friendship between souls on different paths, including those who do not follow a particular religion. Our hosts will explore the writings and practices of their respective faith traditions as a conversation between different expressions of God. This exploration of spiritual permeability is a way to enrich one's own practice while contributing to a world without religious prejudice or fear. In this episode, Rabbi Raquel and Bishop Sam look to the scriptures of Judaism and Christianity to explain the importance of embracing spiritual permeability as a way to explore our own faith and to understand and be enriched by the faith traditions of others. They visit Mount Sinai, the Tower of Babel, Jewish and Episcopal worship services, corporate and individual prayer, and the idea of translation, both literal and figurative. Each episode of To Differ Is Divine includes detailed notes to provide additional context for the religious practices and concepts our hosts discuss. We hope you'll take the time to read them and learn a little bit more about an unfamiliar faith tradition, or maybe even your own. With that, I invite you to enjoy Faith Languages, Episode 2 of To Differ Is Divine, from the Episcopal Diocese of North Carolina.
1: Hello, Rabbi Raquel. It's good to be with you again.
0: Hi,
2: Bishop Sam, delighted to continue our conversation. So the topic today has to do with what we might find in our respective traditions that might support spiritual permeability as part of our personal ongoing faith formation and why we think that all of our listeners might want to consider making this an element of how they shape their own spiritual evolution over time. For me, the whole topic is connected to how I understand revelation. And one of the images that I particularly love is that of Mount Sinai as a kind of a transmitter, that it, it has received a message from divinity, and it's putting it out there for, mm. for the people to hear. And Rabbi Lawrence Kushner has a lovely Simile that he uses in one of his books, he talks about the transmitter is always on, but we're not always in a position to adjust our own receivers appropriately. So he says, Well, the Dolby is off. And I think maybe we don't use Dolby as a measurement anymore. I have no idea. But I'd love that sense that the transmission is ongoing, the revelation continues, whether it's through our own encounters with divinity or it's through texts we study and learn together, or things that happen in worship, but that these moments of revelatory connection serve to keep us moving along our own spiritual paths. And if revelation is of that nature, that it's meant for all of us, for example, there is a very famous midrash that says when Torah was being given on Mount Sinai, when the Holy One was speaking, we tend to think of that as speaking to the assembled Israelites and the mixed multitude. And the Midrash says, but the revelation came in 70 different languages, mm. which was what our ancestors thought would be the maximum number of languages possible. Mm. And that says to me that from all our traditions, revelation comes for all of us to learn from, so that it that image of the transmitter on Mount Sinai that has received from divinity and transmitted it to us is an analog to all the other modes of of revelatory transmission in all of our traditions, and that that argues very strongly to us to listen more broadly than only to Mm. the singular voice that we might have come to preference.
1: Mm. I love that. And I have several associations with the imagery that Rabbi Lawrence Kushner inspired you with one is the you know the transmission. Sometimes there's interference in what the Holy One is calling us to transmit. Sometimes we get in our own way. Recently, when we were gathered for our convention, one of the things that I learned and then quickly forgot is the microphones we were using, you hit a button to turn it on, and if you don't hit the button again, it stays on. And what that means is you can end up transmitting things that you don't intend to be heard throughout the gathering. And luckily, I had someone seated on my right who was very good about reminding me to turn my mic off so that the whispered exchanges that were helping us to stay on track did not get broadcast. But it just made me think of the reality that all of us as human beings As transmitters, and sometimes, to your other point, translators, we are sometimes unfiltered in a way that may impede the message, and part of the spiritual journey in all of our traditions is to pay attention to that, not necessarily to just cover it up, but to pay attention to what we're communicating that we may intend and what we're communicating that we may not intend, and what do we want to do about those unintended communications. The other image around the beautiful poetic invitation of the revelation coming in 70 different languages is that translation was a part of our gathering, and we were translating the English into Spanish. And for those that were listening for the translation, there's always a lag time. And uh, just fascinated by the way that that sometimes plays out, there was a moment when... um, Bishop Orlando, who is the bishop from Costa Rica, was listening to a presentation from one of our chaplains at St. Augustine's University, and she was saying to him that they are going to be actively recruiting students from Costa Rica. And she said, so we're coming to your country, Bishop Orlando. He did not respond at all, even though she was looking at him, until he heard the translation, which was just a few seconds later, and then the connection was made. And I love that in the way that the divine revelation is shared, in all of our traditions, sometimes there's a little bit of a lag time while we sort of translate or internalize, and Mm -hmm. then there's a response. Mm -hmm. And that seems to me part of the holy exchange that we share.
2: Mm -hmm. There are two things that come to mind around that, which I, I wanted to share. One is, and I I don't doubt that some of my co-religionists will not be in agreement with my interpretation here, but that's fine because that's how things work. Uh, there, There is a part of the liturgy during the Torah service where part of putting the Torah back into the ark after reading from it during worship that we say, we very gently point towards it with a, a pinky finger. Uh, and if you're wearing a tallit, you might have wrapped the tzitzit, the threads that hang from the tallit. Around your pinky, and you're and you you're pointing, saying, "This is the Torah, mm-hmm. the Zotha Torah." But it goes on to say, "The Zotha Torah, Asher Sam which Moses placed, Lifnei Bnei Yisrael, in front of the children of Israel, Al from God's mouth, according to God's mouth, Beyond Moshe, by Moses's hand." And mm-hmm. every time I hear it, I think of what is it like to take dictation.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And
2: immediately, I have the sense of there is this translational, there's always this translational gap between the revelation itself and how do we, with our languages, find a way to express what we've received as a revelatory message in a, such a way that we are attempting to share with others what we've learned from divinity. And it isn't always so easily translatable, As we might like. And so when we give too much weight to what's on the surface, we risk recognizing those important and powerful gaps in movement between the revelation itself and it's how it's received and what we do with it. The example you gave of translation, literal translation, in this case from Spanish to English, reminds me of something that my mentor, Reb Zalman, Shakhtar Shalomi, liked to point out is that sometimes you should read a prayer book in another language. If you, you speak a little French or Spanish or Turkish or whatever it is, you should go look at a Jewish prayer book, a siddur, in that language. And he would read a phrase or two from a French prayer book. And it sounds just beautiful and elevated in a different way from what you might find in the English and there's a, a version of a hymn called Ein Kelohenu, There Is None Like Our God, in Spanish that has become very popular in synagogues. And in that, one of the names for God that is repeated is Oceanu our Savior. But many Jews are singing it, and they're not processing that we actually used that name for God. But when you hear Salvador, Nostre Salvador, whoa, that is a very different uh, emotional experience mm. than hearing it in Hebrew, and hearing Savior in English, which to which many Jews still retain a bit of an allergy.
1: Mm. And such a powerful image that you began with in the taking the pinky and pointing to the Torah. And in our liturgy, it just reminds me of the moment, because we were talking about transmission and being proclaimers, the time in our liturgy when the gospel Is read, it's processed, as you know, into the congregation, and everyone turns and orients themselves to the place from which the gospel is being proclaimed. And I love that in both of our traditions, Mm -hmm. there are those ways that we actually bodily connect, because so much of what we experience in the different forms of divine revelation passes through our bodies. They are the receptors as well as the transmitters. And so we We need to use them and to orient them. The invitation to look at our prayer book, our liturgy, the ways that we offer praise to God, and to look at it in different languages, because in both of our traditions, we've spread throughout the globe, and so it's been incorporated into the local context and into the local language, and there is such a richness, as you named a few moments ago. I still struggle with Spanish, but I I am greatly appreciative of the translation into Spanish that we have in our prayer book and the ability to offer at least parts of the service in Spanish when we celebrate in communities that are bilingual. That is a very powerful gift for me in terms of the leading of worship that helps actually as a doorway or a pathway into another culture and into another context.
2: That speaks directly to one of my favorite proof texts around the divine love of diversity and a divine investment in the benefits of diversity. And that's the narrative in Genesis 11, one through nine of the Tower of Babel. There's lots of ways, of course, to to read the import of this. And sometimes folks will look at it and say, oh, well, God is just protecting heaven. God doesn't want us to come back to our source. And isn't that rude of God? And there's a lovely 19th century commentary that I appreciate that says, the reason God wanted to disperse the peoples and to give them all different languages was mentioned in the text. So, they would have to get to know each other. So, if we in a sense, we're able to resolve history by the 11th chapter of Genesis, and everything returned to its source, then none of the, the learning or the spiritual struggle or the effort to figure out what does it mean, as you say, to live an embodied life of faith and connectedness to the divine. None of that would have happened, and there's some message within that narrative of God's preference for us to do our own work. Mm. It may very well have been a significant compromise, shall we say, for God to say, okay, given them free will for whatever that means on their planet, they're in charge, and then to have to endure how we use it. But at the same time, I think that that underscores for us our responsibility to care about one another across these boundaries of, of language and culture and religion and see what we can learn. and. Just as a quick aside, I don't think that the movement to encourage learning about one another is a directive for cultural or religious appropriation. I I don't have to take communion to appreciate communion. I can learn something about the particular spiritual interaction that that represents for Christians without doing it myself. But Mm -hmm. if I'm never exposed to it, if I resist even knowing about it, then I'm missing an additional lesson that I could learn from someone who speaks a different faith language.
1: Mm, That is very powerful um, in terms of the experience of one another's traditions. And again, in the celebration of difference, which is a focus of our conversations, to be in a place of worship in another tradition as an observer, and to look not just for the ways that there are connections and parallels and overlaps, but what is distinctively different is quite powerful and quite moving. Truthfully, as a bishop, I don't get to do that enough anymore. (laughs) When I was working in a congregation at a parish, as part of our preparation for our students in Confirmation, we brought them to other houses of worship to experience and observe other traditions. And so I had a regular built into my sort of year long sequence of experience of worship, the opportunity to worship in other faith traditions and in other houses of worship. That is less true now. Doesn't mean it never happens, but it it does not happen in the regular way. I miss the opportunities to deepen those connections. Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, I think that the pandemic that we are hoping at some point to come out of, at least with a sense of it being that the virus becomes a vector of treatable illness, not not quite so dangerous as the initial COVID uh, virus was, that we might have more of those opportunities. I, I do miss the times that I was able to uh, share worship with Muslim friends. And I, I remember very powerfully the first time that I attended a Muslim worship. It was with a group of women from the Ahmadiyya Muslim tradition. And they gathered with some women from the synagogue where I was serving at that time in the late afternoon for a, a social and study session together. And when it was time for evening prayer, the Muslim women had their service and invited us to be present for it. And even those of us who didn't know a word of Arabic, which was pretty much all of us, could hear the, the similar sound of from the baruch that we hear. We heard all the times that Allah was blessed, the notion of blessing and watching some of the embodied gestures of kneeling and prostrating and so on. We still have some of that in our own tradition, not used in exactly the same way, but Hearing the musicality and watching the devotion and having this sense that, oh, yes, we share something and we do it differently at the same time. And isn't this glorious that they're so comfortable in their own faith that we get to be faith tourists with no risk in either direction because we were all feeling very honored to be learning together and creating some kind of relationship I've missed that a lot over the last three years, uh, other than when I get to go out with you now occasionally. In-person worship has been pretty rare.
1: Yes. Well, and thankfully, this fall, that feels as though it started to shift back in the other direction, which has been such a gift. Mm -hmm. Um, I love also what you shared earlier about the invitation from God to exercise not only our free will. But our creativity. And often, one of the avenues of creativity is to write prayers, to formulate our way of petition, of praise, of opening our hearts to the holy. And the fact that each of our traditions has different ways of expressing that, that complement each other and that enrich and actually offer a fuller experience of what prayer can be. Because prayer is such an integral part of our understanding of how we connect with and communicate with the Holy One, and yet we have different ways and different traditions around how we celebrate that. And just as individuals compose different prayers, traditions gravitate towards different expressions, different forms of prayer— and yet there's both the overlap and the complementarity. In particular, when I think about a prayer in our tradition that is revered and celebrated, really in response to Jesus' followers saying, Teach us to pray, Jesus. And he he offers what in our tradition we call the Lord's Prayer. And there is much in that that I think resonates across different faith traditions. And then there are some aspects that are perhaps unique to the expression of prayer as Jesus taught His disciples. And yet, as we recognize, Jesus offered that prayer as a Jewish man to Jewish people. And that is not to conflate Christianity and Judaism, but simply to honor that the prayer that Jesus taught is very much resonant with the Jewish tradition. because he was speaking authentically from his own tradition and experience and in particular we struggle i know in our tradition with the invitation of forgiveness mm-hmm. you know forgive us our and different translations forgive us our sins forgive us our trespasses forgive us our debts as we forgive those who sin against us those who trespass against us our debtors and i don't think i ever say that prayer without thinking of something in particular that I've had trouble forgiving another person for, as a reminder that that is part of the spiritual practice at the heart of that prayer.
2: Mm-hmm. It does strike me often in prayer how didactic it can be in the sense that it's, it's a learning mechanism for us. And I think that there's a place in some sort of sacred heart of spiritual living where everybody's mystics sit around and smile at each other, having had you know, the same insight. In many traditions that I've had the privilege of encountering, there's the a delicate tension between structured prayer and prayers from the heart. Mm-hmm. So that, for example, in Judaism, we have what we call a keva, literally a structure for the prayer services that are meant to happen at particular times of day, just as I think you find in the Book of Common Prayer. But there's also the teaching that that the Keva is there in the event that we don't have a spontaneous way to open our mouths in prayer, so that there's some place to start. But if we hit a word that we cannot leave, we stay there. And I think that what struck me for the first time in hearing your depiction of Jesus being asked, Master, teach us to pray, is that there, how similar that is to the kind of yearning uh, many people bring with them into their synagogue or church or mosque or temple. How do I do this in such a way that I feel it? You know, going back to what you said earlier about embodiment, another teaching from that uh, book of Lawrence Kushner's and it's that eventually God's voice is what you hear when you're praying God is praying through you and that mm-hmm. the words of the prayers come to be what link you intimately with the Holy One that you can wherever you're standing say oh this this is the gateway to heaven and I I didn't know it but here I am and my little I and the large I am mm-hmm in that sacred moment, become linked and expressive of that mutual yearning that can sustain us. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, and that, that powerful image of the way that we pray with a structure, corporately or you know, in community as a congregation, coupled with the way that we're invited to pray individually and to find our own voice and our own expression— of again thanksgiving or praise or deep lament or you know whatever is on our hearts but pouring that out to god is such a beautiful part of both of our traditions and both of our witness in terms of the journey the spiritual journey and our access at even dare i say intimacy with the holy one i love the fact that in both of our traditions there is space for the more formal prayers that make up our respective liturgies, if you will, and the spontaneous prayer. And our heart is expressed in different ways in both of those forms, but that is really the essence of what we're trying to, I think, both convey and to embody, as we were speaking about. It also reminds me, that those two forms of prayers remind me of another passage in Luke's gospel, it's also in Matthew's, translated in different ways, the kingdom of God is among you, the kingdom of God is within you. I don't pretend to fully grasp, nor do I expect to fully grasp the depth of that truth in my lifetime, but I do believe that that invitation is connected to the Jacob story. Surely God is in this place, and I did not know it. Once that connection is made and that we can feel it individually, but sometimes we feel it in the body, I don't think there's any more powerful experience for me as a person of faith than when I am with a community gathered and it feels as though we are all connected to one another. That happens in both of our traditions in the gathered worship and the prayer that we share. And it's in those moments, it does feel like, in the words of Luke's gospel, the kingdom of God is among you, but it is also deeply, profoundly true that it is within us. And for me, the two forms of prayer are ways that we express those two related but different translations of essentially the same teaching.
2: Mm -hmm. That makes me think of of something that I, I heard from an atheist friend of mine, who observed that while they didn't really think much of religious observance, at least during the time religious people were engaged in their respective ceremonial gatherings, they weren't out hurting anybody else. And I think that there's, there's something really important in that observation that challenges those of us who take those times in community to pray, to give some thought to what does it mean to be gathered in community, And how do we use the energies that are generated there to do work that we could be reasonably reassured would be pleasing to the the nature of the God we're worshiping? I think there's tremendous arrogance in, in trying to guess how any other person, much less any other tradition, truly understands the connections to divinity that have been revealed through their own teachings. But I do think that we can, like that atheist, tell the difference between something that brings healing and peace and comfort and mutuality into the world and something that doesn't. So that there is something disconcerting about religious gatherings that begin to sound as though they are a call to combat Mm -hmm. with those who are different in whatever way. Mm -hmm. And that can happen in any tradition on the planet, if we're not attentive to, that's probably not true. You know, I'm going to back away from that before I hear from 15 different comparative religious scholars. I'm beginning to think of a few where it's inimical to their teaching. And we'd all like to think that that kind of competitive spirituality is inimical to our traditions, but we know in many cases that's not the case. One of the other ways of embodying what I feel is not just a permission, but a real mandate to be open to revelation in its broadest sense is a passage in Deuteronomy 29, 13, and 14, where God says, I inscribe this covenant with all of you who are here with us this day and all who are not. Mm -hmm. And that is read to be expansive in the vertical and horizontal sense through time and space. Mm. And it's a reminder that when you get to that passage and you read it, you are standing there receiving it, that there is in, in the hearing and study of scripture, you are placing yourself back in that moment of revelatory reception. And in that moment, you are part of an entirety to which divinity is making itself known to whatever extent each of us can receive. So to have that in my tradition and then think that God's only speaking to me and that there's nothing to learn outside of the context of my own faith strikes me as rejecting an offering that God has made quite blatantly to me.
1: Mm. Thank you for, for really zeroing in on that particular danger, because I do think it's a danger, and I think we want to name that as religious leaders, that when we are in a place where, for any number of reasons, a kind of arrogance creeps in, and a kind of singularity that leads sometimes people in religious traditions to assert themselves over others, which is, as you point out, really counter to the teachings Of most faith traditions, and yet there's an energy that seems to get diverted, and it can take all kinds of forms of violence or of aggression that really do not get at the heart, uh, well, are quite, (laughs) quite the opposite of the invitation at the heart of the Holy One, and yet it seems to Happen. And I do wonder if that, going back to your reference early on to the Babel story, if that wasn't also a part of the gift in the diversity of language to break apart a sort of assertion of dominance that was coming when there was no diversity of understanding and of language and of culture. And so the gift that the Divine One offers in diversity. Is not to scatter simply with the intent of breaking down community, but actually to diversify with the intent of building up community, which is quite different. But branches of our traditions can sometimes take on that cultic mindset that, again, seems to either cut off or try to exercise some dominance over another. And that is really. Anathetical to my understanding of the teachings of our tradition.
2: I hadn't thought about domination in that context before, but it, it makes a great deal of sense to hear that word used relative to the text. There's a certain kind of arrogance that was being expressed by our mythical ancestors that, well, we all we, we can all agree with one another that we're going to storm heaven and somehow what? Be in charge. In some ways, there's a, there's a real anti-colonial sort of anti-domination message that's embedded there so that because we don't automatically understand each other, if we wish to, which might be a source of much greater human power and creativity, then we have to put in the effort to get to know one another in ways that we could do more easily or think we were doing more easily when we were all speaking some original language that was shared by everyone. And the sense that part of what a creator God transmits to the creation is equally a sense of generativity, creativity, and that what would we make if we were all the same? Mm -hmm. What beauty would come out of that sort of uniformity? And this is a question that's being very hotly debated in our culture right now. There there are tensions between a desire for uplifting and honoring and learning from all sorts of diversities and a resistance to that and a sense that if everybody were the same, everything would be fine. And of course, experience has not taught us that that's how it works by any means. And you know, to revert to my my usual example, if God didn't love diversity, there wouldn't be 30,000 species of cockroach.
1: Absolutely. I have a just a Tower of Babel story that I wanted to share because when I was in seminary, the tradition was in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures introductory course, that they would give content quizzes to make sure the students were actually learning the content of the text. And prior to the first content quiz, the second-year class would put on a skit for the first-year class to help them with their content, and people would dress up as different biblical characters from the Hebrew Scriptures and just kind of, you know, present and represent some of the stories to help them and remind them. I took a slightly different approach to that and created out of a large cardboard shipping box a tower. I drew the bricks on it, and I wore it, and I actually appeared in the skit as the Tower of Babel. (laughs) And I actually characterized, and I wrote this on the the tower costume that I created, drunk with self-importance. Because my learning from that story was what happens when we assert our self-importance over the Holy One. And so, I, I love the way that you were talking about the arrogance being a part of that story.
2: Yeah, I didn't know you had such a truly implied experience of that. And for those who haven't met Bishop Sam, he is a tall person. <laughs> so, this works very well, except for the arrogance part. But I think that that does bring us back to near where we had begun our conversation. And that is, when one seeks to do the work of spiritual permeability... One of the first things that we have to become aware of is that we will encounter internal and external resistances, that all of us come to wherever we are, as more or less grown ups, with experiences that tell us that there are others, that people outside of the community that it feels like home to us are somehow different in a way that we might. Have good reason to fear or to have experienced pain from. And we don't need to rehearse all of those possibilities. And I want to include in that the spiritual damage that can be done from the side of Jewish disdain of Christianity and resistance to learning anything about Christianity, based on 2000 years of rather unhappy history. There are other things that happened in that history besides the stuff that makes Jews uncomfortable. But I have found that that there can be an internal, it's what I used to call my Jesus allergy, that I had been doing interfaith work for a very long time, but I still twitched a little whenever I said Jesus. It takes some practice and it takes some recognizing. So what's your stuff? What's the stuff that you carry that tells you that to be faithful to your tradition, you need to block out and resist what the other tradition is offering? because. Of course, they want to change you, but not everyone amongst all of the they's at all has that as their goal. And and I think when we look deeply into our respective traditions, there is a deeply embedded permission to seek out learning from all sources. So I know there's a, a phrase in um, or teaching of uh, St. Augustine based on the episode in Exodus of uh, the the Israelites taking gold and jewels from the Egyptians on their way out, and saying that what we learned from the transfer of the Egyptian gold was you can learn from anything, you mm-hmm. can learn from anyone. Whatever is written, he says, is written for our doctrine. I cherish that. And I know that there are Jewish voices saying the same thing, but I have fun quoting St. Augustine. I think that we have to own our stuff and learn to hold it more lightly so that we can begin to ask the kinds of questions of our devotional friends in other faiths. How do you relate to God? How do you know God is in your life? How do you find joy in your faith? Hmm. What exactly is a trinity? Whatever it is that you think, you can't begin to understand that you begin to feel that it's safe and that you can answer without feeling you have to hide something about how your own spiritual life works for you within the context of your tradition.
1: Hmm. I love your question about what exactly is a Trinity and how do you make sense of it? We have a Sunday that celebrates the Trinity. It's the Sunday after Pentecost, as you know. The running joke in our tradition is that the um, lead clergy person in the parish or the congregation always assigns it to the junior clergy person to preach on that Sunday. <laughs> nobody really wants to try and explain the unexplainable. And we do sometimes hide under the banner of mystery, right? Well it's it's part of the great mystery and it is, but I believe if Trinity has value as a truth, it can't simply belong to Christianity. So I would wonder, and it is just a wondering, that when I think of what is the Trinity, what's an image for what the Trinity might be like, I actually think of the burning bush, because I think of the bush, and I think of the fire, and I think of the voice. And those are three different expressions, all contained in the wholeness of that burning bush. But it is a source of revelation. and. That's deeply rooted in the Exodus story. I find it deeply powerful, even though I don't pretend to understand it.
2: Mm -hmm. So, one of the things that has evolved over the past couple of years as an important learning for me is to make a distinction between uh, my concerns about Christian supersessionism and my appreciation of the way in which Christian teachers can use what was in the first century, uh, an array of foundational texts that eventually came to have somewhat lower status than the Gospels, but was still contained. And even though the final version of Hebrew scripture was not complete in the time Jesus lived, he and his followers certainly had a considerable awareness of what was in, say, the first five books of what come to be Hebrew scripture. I've always also thought that there's something in the burning bush narrative that it would make sense for Christian interpretation to focus on. So I'm quite taken with the way in which you manage that. I've always wondered, you know, is there anywhere, you know, some Christian teaching about the crown of thorns having been from that bush? Mm. You know, it just If I had written the New Testament, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Christian scripture, that's something I might have been interested in. I think that there is something quite profound and inspiring for me in beginning to get a sense of, uh, not as a process of erasure, but as a creative process, how were the early Jesus followers using the, and transforming the language that they were already comfortable with the available narratives and transforming that into a new theology it's not that they that i think that they weren't doing something different because i i think that god will do anything to get our attention and one of the things god has done is give us multitudinous religious traditions so that for anybody so inclined there will be something that will speak to their heart I have deep concerns about supersessionism, but a great deal of interest in how early Christian teaching worked with the mythological and narrative structures of the Israelites to create something different and to honor that difference.
1: Hmm. I do think that there is a mystical connection that may, may be a helpful path for us to explore as we continue our journey around spiritual permeability. And I love our conversation today. I hope that those listening have been inspired by some of the moments and some of the differences that we've celebrated, as well as the points of reference in our respective traditions and in our respective religious texts. And I look forward to further conversation as we go deeper in this exchange, not just of ideas, but of experience religious, faithful experience, heartfelt understanding, and this deeper connection in the exploration of both our role as receptors and also as transmitters of the promises of the holy.
2: Absolutely. And for those who might be the least bit interested, at some future conversation, we'll um, talk about The Trinity and the way in which Judaism's mystical tradition gives us an image of an 11-part God, that could be fun. We look
0: forward to it. Join us next time as Bishop Sam Rodman and Rabbi Raquel Jurevix talk about some of the scriptural passages that speak to them.